Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to meet together today. And we just thank you for um, your desire to use us in your work. These are great chapters learning Amen. about um, when you first sent the disciples out and the way you mentored them and encouraged them, even though in a lot of ways they didn't really know what they were doing. So mm. I pray that you would help this to inspire us, um, to reach out to the people around us, and just that you would bless this conversation. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so chapter 37, titled The First Evangelist, looks like it's based on several passages, Matthew 10, Mark 6, and Luke 9. Probably not going to read all of those, but I'll read a couple of them just to set the tone here. So Matthew 10, look at that, right to it. Um, this is a long, long section, but the latter part of it's really a, a large monologue, and I'll probably just read like the first 15 verses, and I'll do it rather quickly. Okay, here we go. So I'm in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse one. It says, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Verse five, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staves, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you or hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off your feet, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Okay, wow. At least as a burgeoning theologian, there's a lot in there. Like a lot, a lot. That's, there's dozens of sermons just in those sort of 15 verses that we read. But before we get into them, I'm going to now read Mark 6. We don't often read the Markan accounts, but we're going to do it today because it's so short. Mark 6, 7 to 11 it says, and he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He also said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake the dust under your feet as a testimony against them Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that the people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, one final passage. Don't usually read all of them, but there's slight differences. If you were listening carefully, you heard some significant differences there between the Markan account and the Matthew account. And we talked about yesterday the consistency, but not... Not such an identical telling of the story of Jesus that you could accuse the, the synoptic writers of collusion. 
Okay, so now quickly the Luke account says, beginning in verse, beginning in chapter nine, verse one, it says, then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither staffs nor bag, nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everyone. Um, I think that's it. Okay, so that's the backdrop against which the chapter, the first evangelist is built upon. And I like what Shani says there. Wow, wow is right. And there's a lot going on in this chapter. It's a long chapter. Mm-hmm. How many times? Did you read it several times or mm-hmm. just once? Yeah, I me too. Twice. I read it several times through. And what's happening here, I think sort of the overview of the chapter is that Jesus is sending out his disciples so that they can learn, get a little taste. Jesus as a good teacher, as a good mentor, as a good trainer and educator, he wants to give them a supervised taste of what it's like to go out when he's not around so that they can make their mistakes and have their trials and some victories and some some wins as well, but then they can then come back, which is what our next chapter is about, and report. So this is very wise. Rather than staying continually uninterruptedly with the disciples throughout the whole of his earthly ministry. And then when he's crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended, then they're like, oh, we don't know how to function without Jesus. This is smart, right? Pedagogically, this is smart what he does here. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Mm -hmm. You like that? Any thoughts sort of at the outset, Elise, that sort of jumped out at you? Yeah, I just, I thought of the parents that want to teach their kids how to swim, so they throw them in the water. That's how I learned to swim, and it was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. <laughs> yeah, but it, it wasn't my parents. It was two terrible people that I have never forgiven. Friends. Friends. We should talk about forgiveness. We should talk about forgiveness, but not right now. I do still have a grudge in my heart toward these people. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so Jesus here sends them out two by two, so there still is some camaraderie there, companionship there, mm-hmm. but they're going out to labor alone, and I think, I'm just going to sort of give you a overview of what I think the big thing that's happening here is, I think Jesus is purposefully sending them out so they can make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You, you agree with that? Yeah. In fact, when I was reading this, I remembered being at a rise um, and you got up and you said the biggest mistake that people make in sharing their faith is that they don't make enough mistakes. You remember that? Give me some. That's, that's one of my favorite things to say. Mm-hmm. I'm is, wondering, David, what are some of the mistakes that you made when you were first when you were first getting involved in ministry. Are any of them really embarrassing? Oh yeah, oh yeah, very embarrassing. I would say the prime, I would say I made a lot of mistakes in my first one to three years. I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes since then, but in the first one to three years of telling people about my experience with Jesus, I would say most of my mistakes, 90% of them would fit under one sort of umbrella. And that was going in with too much information and too much of the wrong kind of information. Mm -hmm. Like going in hard on prophecy, hard on the end of the world, hard on the antichrist. I mean, I think a lot of Adventists, a lot of brand new Christians, they just, they're so passionate, they're so excited, they're so enthusiastic about the things they've learned. They just think everybody else will automatically share their enthusiasm and their passion. And they go in too much, too hard, too fast, and 
that was a lesson that it took me a while to learn. And I did it with my family. I did it with my friends. I did it with people that I just met. So I could tell you some specific instances of embarrassing stories, mm-hmm. but the short version is I, I think I was just too ambitious, too energetic, too enthusiastic, and didn't emphasize the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the kingdom. I, yes, those things were all there, but they were almost secondary or subordinate to Jesus is coming soon. We need to get ready. This is who the Antichrist is. This is what the market be. Mm-hmm. I just sort of did that classic thing that a lot of new Christians do, and I sort of overdid it. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to that at all or no? Well, I definitely made some mistakes. I, don't, I probably made a few different ones. What were your mistakes? Um, did they fit under sort of an umbrella? Um, they're pretty embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> and I take it that you don't want to, you don't want to tell us. Well, what I are. mean, I, I can, I guess. One is, okay. <laughs> one, this is so embarrassing. Elise is a very good storyteller. It's one okay. of the best things about her. So I think I got spooked early on and I couldn't tell like, when is it appropriate to start a spiritual conversation and when is it not? Okay. So, you know, sometimes I would hear people say, oh, you can talk to people on the plane. You can talk you know, here or there. And so there's this idea that like any, any interaction could be a spiritual opportunity. Right. So, and I think in general, it's good to think like that because we do, you know, I have had great spiritual conversations on the plane. Right. But one time I was walking, I was walking to class at a rise and on the sidewalk, there was a man walking towards me and I was like, Oh, I should stop and ask him if he, if he wants me to give a Bible studies. And I was like, no, this how is old are you at this time? Like 19. You're 19. Okay. I was like, that's so weird. Like you don't just stop on the sidewalk and do that. So I was like, I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. So I walked past him and I kept walking for like, I don't know, maybe a minute and a half. And I just felt terrible. I know where this is going. I was like, I, what if that, what if he really wants to know about the Bible and he ruined it and I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life. So I turned around. Elise has a very sensitive conscience in case you hadn't detected that. And I ran, I ran, and I was like, excuse me. (laughs) Yes, I can't believe I'm telling you. You are killing me right now. I'm so glad this is being recorded. It's like, excuse me, but I'm sorry. I know this is strange, but I'm at least, and I'm trying to find people to get Bible studies to. Okay, so he was super polite. I gave him a little spiel, and he was like, thank you so much, but you know, I'm not really interested. (laughs) But did I just accept that? No. I was like, you didn't excuse yourself politely. But really, I mean, it's really meaningful content. And what about just one? What about just one? And this is like really not in line with my personality. No, it's I'm not, not a salesperson at all. But you went for the hard stuff. But I was just confused about right. like how hard do you push and when. <laughs> anyway, he said yes, and we ended up having Bible. Oh, he studies. said yes. Yeah, we had like five Bible studies. Whoa! Okay. My outreach partner, I think, was super embarrassed when he found out what had happened. But we made friends with a guy, and he took us out to eat. And when he took us out to eat, uh, <laughs> Brad, so at Arise, we were vegan. And so we hadn't eaten cheese in a really long time. This guy took us out to eat, and my, this is Brad my outreach partner, Brad, got fettuccine Alfredo, but he, he hadn't eaten cheese for a really long time, and he broke out in hives. Like while you were eating? Yeah, sorry, we should, we should, um, Elise, you were hilarious. <laughs> so I made, but I don't know, but that's mistakes. actually not really a mistake because the guy ended up, you ended up having, I mean, it was weird, it, it was, was awkward. Weird. But I mean, I think it shows how many mistakes we can make without really offending kind hearted people. 
And, and it goes back to the point that I said at Arise that really registered with you, and that is that the number one mistake that, that people make in sharing their faith is they don't make enough mistakes, mm-hmm. right? You have to make that sort of body of mistakes, that battery of mistakes, so that you then can look back retrospectively and say, I don't do it that way anymore. I use the illustration of learning to ride a unicycle. No one just gets on a unicycle and rides off into the sunset. doesn't happen. Even people that are very skilled right now at learning to ride a unicycle, they would have had to fall. They would have had to fall to the front and to the back and to the side and to the other side. And as you do it wrong, you learn, oh, it's not like that, it's not like that, it's not like that, it's not like that, it's not like that. And then over time, as you avoid the mistakes, you learn how to ride a unicycle. When it comes to sharing the faith, people are so afraid mm-hmm. that they'll say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, act the wrong way. They don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And in not doing anything, then they don't make the mistakes that would then become their teachers and their mentors that they can look back retrospectively. Both of us have given you some illustrations here. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, go out, I'm giving you power. And he does give them some very interesting instructions, right? Like, you know, when you go to a home and... The thing about the shaking off the dust of the feet, don't take a bunch of extra supplies, have faith. So he sends them out, and we're going to see between these two chapters, they go out and they have some successes, and they also have some failures, and then they come back and they report them to Jesus. And the big takeaway here for us is, what? Go out, make some mistakes, you might get some things right as well, and then whatever, your triumphs and your tragedies, bring them back to Jesus and say, hey, this is what happened, and then you're in that educational mm-hmm. sequence. You feeling me? Okay, so let's get into the chapter, and one of my favorite, favorite, favorite sentences was the very first sentence of the chapter. I just thought this was so cool. It says, the apostles were members of the family of Jesus, and who remembers what the word apostle means? It means sent. Just remember, you can look at the, the, the sort of middle word there, post, P-O-S-T, post, to post something is to send it. And so those that were sent were members of the family of Jesus. Remember, it was just, we're in chapter 37. Just chapter 33 was Jesus, who are my brethren? And I just love this idea that, that she says in that chapter that the kinship that we have with Jesus by faith, by belief, by trust is actually closer than the biological kinship that either Jesus' brothers or even Mary had. And so I just think that's so beautiful. They were members of the family of Jesus and they had accompanied him as he traveled on foot throughout Galilee. They had shared with him in the toils and hardships that overtook them. They had listened to his discourses. They had walked and talked with the son of God. And from his daily instruction, they had learned how to work. And I underlined this. I really liked this for the elevation of humanity. Yeah, that, that's my favorite sentence in the whole chapter. Is it really? Yeah. Like, I think it just very concisely explained what the purpose of mission work, the purpose of evangelism is, is that we're working to uplift humanity. And I think today, a Mm. lot of times, you know, we think of evangelism or proselytizing as something that's separate from really enhancing the quality of somebody's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this chapter made it super clear, like, they're working to build people up, which is what true ministry is. That's funny that that jumped out to you because that's the same thing that occurred to me as a gospel minister, as a pastor, as a father, as a preacher. I was thinking, this is my job. My job Mm -hmm. is the elevation of humanity Mm -hmm. to build up. One of the words that occurs quite a little bit in the old King James Version is the word edify. 
And that's not a word we use very much. It's an older word. But the word edify comes from the same root word as the word edifice. And that it means to literally to build up, like an edifice. You build it up. And what God has called us as disciples, as apostles, as followers of Jesus to be, is people that are uplifting, building up humanity. And so that's great that that popped out at you. Mm. I really liked that. I liked that a lot. Um, she also goes on to say in that same paragraph there that they were to promote the comfort of all. The word comfort occurs quite a little bit. In fact, we'll get to one of my favorite sentences a little bit later. Um, they were to work for the spiritual benefit of others. And then I'm, I'm always noticing this. And at least on this journey, one of the things I'm noticing is that there are themes. This is like my, I don't know, fifth or sixth or seventh time. It's probably my sixth or seventh time reading Desire of Ages through. But I'm seeing things this time through that I've not seen before. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that pops out to me is how often Ellen White uses the word tender mm. or tenderness to refer to Jesus. He was tender. She even says he was exceedingly tender, right? And here she says, um, they were still in need of much instruction, great patience, and tenderness. I think tender is an important word. When we think about Jesus, the idea that he's tender is so appealing to me. Because mm. I'm sometimes not the most tender per- You're a far more tender person than I am, a more sympathetic person. But th- does that sort of register with you, the idea that, Jesus was tender. That's cool. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. Every time I read the word tender in Ellen White's writings, I circle it. Um, Because, I mean, there's so much negative theology that would indicate that God isn't tender. Yes. And we know the devil is constantly trying to, you know, warp our perception of God. But the word tender somehow flies in the face of you know, anything negative about God, not only does he care about us, but he's gentle and, you know, he understands the, the complexity of being a human being and having the struggles and feelings that we have. Yes. And that's very much on display here, isn't it? Like Jesus in, you know, excellent pedagogical educational fashion sends them out knowing good and well, they're going to make a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And when they come back, he then, how does he relate to those mistakes? And this is a great point, everyone. I want you to feel this. How does God relate to your mistakes, to your failures, to your shortcomings with tenderness? Mm. Just, just let that wash over you right now. God's attitude toward your falling short of the high ideal that is ours in Christ as his ambassadors, as his evangelists, What do you got? You got something? Okay, EGW writing says tender is used 111 times in the Desire of Ages. Exactly, 111 times. Hey, Daryl, could you also look up the word compassion? That would be great. And if you notice it, at least point it out. How many times does compassion occur in Desire of Ages? Because she'll often use them together, tender and compassionate. Mm -hmm. Okay, Um, I really like the, now we're on page 405 of the types and symbols or 350 of the original. I really like this whole next section. I'm just going to read. In fact, why don't you read it a little bit, if you don't mind? That um, the paragraph that begins with while. Just read that down to, just read that whole paragraph. While they had been with him, the disciples had often been perplexed by the teaching of the priests and Pharisees, but Mm. they had brought their perplexities to Jesus. He had set before them the truths of scripture in contrast with tradition. Thus, he had strengthened their confidence in God's word and in a great measure had set them free from their fear of the rabbis and their bondage to tradition. Mm, that right there. Yeah, keep reading. Is that the whole paragraph? 
In the training of the disciples, the example of the Savior's life was far more effective than any mere doctrinal instruction. Okay. Daryl says um, compassion or compassionate is used 61 times in the Desire of Ages. So tender is like even double that. Now, Mm. the point that I wanted to get at here, and I really like this, is did you feel the strength of that idea that, that when the disciples initially began to follow Jesus, they were confused by a lot of the things that he said and did. He didn't fit, as we've talked about many times before, the mold, the, the mold of what Messiah was supposed to be and supposed to do. And this created some anxiety and fear in the disciples, and especially when the religious leaders were highly antagonistic, downright hostile to Jesus, and they carried themselves with such religious you know, ornamentation and augustness, and they just looked super spiritual. And this caused anxiety and fear to the disciples. And so they would then come back to Jesus and say, yeah, but Jesus, what about this? You know, we heard one of the scribes, one of the rabbis, one of the elders say this, and then Jesus would patiently walk them through the scriptural teaching. And so she says here, over time now, that fear, that anxiety that they had with regards to the hostility of the rabbis and the elders and the scribes toward Jesus That was going away now. They were beginning to stand on their own feet. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really emerges in this chapter is the pedagogical beauty of Jesus. He was walking them through step by step, as any good teacher does, so that they could stand on their own feet. And I really like that. Mm -hmm. Because there was a certain sort of fear and anxiety that was tied up in the religion of the Pharisees. Have I done enough? Am I enough? Am I busy enough? That comes up in the next chapter. Um, and Jesus was doing ministry and life so different that now they're beginning to see not just Jesus as a miracle worker, but their faith is getting to be in scripture. Like, no, wait a minute. They're wrong about scripture that Jesus has shown us these things in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Moses. And I really like that we get a little window here into Jesus patiently, sequentially instructing them so they can stand on their own two feet. Mm-hmm. I also love it, you know, at the end of that statement, talking about how his example was more effective than his instruction, although the doctrinal instruction was important too, but he'd been with them. Correct. And it reminded me of, there was some really fascinating research done um, by public health people that wanted to know how contagious are our habits. Okay. Um, so you've heard of the six, de- six degrees of separation, yep. like... Yeah. You're related to somebody by six degrees. Of, well, you'll know someone you'll who knows know someone somebody. who Not knows related, somebody, right? But so everyone know. in the world, like you could trace, um, and I don't know if it's completely true, but this idea that humanity is kind of more interconnected than, than we realize. Right. Well, these public health um, researchers have come up with this idea that there's three degrees of influence. So they looked at the Framingham Heart Study, which was this huge study done over a period of many years, and it assessed a lot of different health metrics. And hmm. they found that um, your eating habits will impact not only those who know you well, you know, which would be a first degree relationship, right. but the people that they know and then the people that they know. So it's not as statistically significant as the relation, um, you know, as the third, the third relationship out isn't as statistically significant as the close sure, friendship or whatever, but it's still statistically significant. So they found that for eating habits, for happiness, for depression, wow. Um, that 
our habits literally, you know, we think of they have like an almost an atmosphere. Yeah, and we think of wow, co- that's like cool. we think of COVID as a contagious illness or, you know, the flu, but really all of our habits are contagious and I think that's why Jesus knew the power of discipleship. If we want to impact oh, anyone, yes, we need yes, to be with them. Yes, 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 yes. And remember, when it talks about Jesus the calling, there, oh, several chapters ago, we had a chapter called He Ordained 12. I think it was He Ordained 12 or He Chose 12. And she, the, the text in, I think it's Mark or Matthew says, He called them that they might be with Him. Mm. And so that those layers, that, that outward orbit, that atmosphere of influence, Jesus here selects His 12, but then they will have an influence. Who will have an influence? Who will have an influence that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And it really brings a rich meaning to just our everyday lives and habits. Like, you yeah. know, we are, we are way more influential than we realize. Than we realize. There's the, uh, you've heard the old saying that, you know, so such and such an idea, a concept, a habit is more caught than taught. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus, that's, what, that's what's happening here with the spending of time with the disciples. They're, they're catching the kind of person he is. They're catching, she even says, it's one of my favorite words, you know this, the word tone. She uses that word so often, tone and tact. Tone and tact. So they're picking up the tone of Jesus, the tact of Jesus, the tenderness of Jesus. Yes, the scriptural instruction, hugely important. The doctrinal instruction, very important. But the, if, if he had had all of that and he had not behaved in the way that he did, it would have been much less influential and powerful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, then she has a paragraph where she talks about how they were sent out two by two, right? We've talked a little bit about that. That was so, if they'd been sent out by themselves alone, it could have been catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And uh, go, go. Oh, I thought it was interesting. After she explains that strategy, she said, you know, efforts today would be far more successful if this were followed. And I couldn't help but think of really this tragic situation with Ravi Zacharias and the tendency of powerful We've talked people. about that. Okay. Yeah, like all of us need other people. And accountability. all of us need accountability. Yeah. The guy basically had no accountability. He needed a partner. One of the things that I've been very passionate about in my ministry from the very beginning, from the jump, has always been to partner with people that are my intellectual, theological, lifestyle equals. I like to be around people like Nathan, like Ty, like Emil, like Jeffrey, like Matt Parra. I mean, I have a cadre of people, Scott Moore, it's a long list, Jennifer Schwerzer, yourself. I love surrounding myself with other people because I don't trust myself. There have actually been opportunities, I don't say this very often, but there have been opportunities in my ministry to be the guy in some big ministry that people want to throw money at and turn me into, you know, some big rock star evangelist. It doesn't appeal to me at all. I would infinitely rather be with another person, a community, for accountability that goes both mm-hmm. ways. I love the, you know, this, back mm-hmm. and forth, but I also just need accountability. And it's a great point about Zacharias. He didn't have a lot of accountability. He had, you know, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He was traveling all around and he kind of got to do what he wanted. And um, it wasn't until after he died that it was like, wait a minute, this guy was a, basically a predator. Mm. It's terrible. And I know this is something that's... Um, Really near and dear to your heart. Um, so I'm going to kind of, do you have anything there on that page? I'm going to move on from that well, page think, unless you've got something there. I think there. that uh, it was phenomenal, the paragraph that pointed out that Jesus spent more time healing yes. than preaching. Yes, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and I just want to read the end of that paragraph. 
um, which I thought was powerful. It says, his voice was the first sound that many had ever oh, heard. Oh, this moved my heart. This is on the next page for me. I wrote beautiful okay, right there in the margin. His, his name, the first word they had ever spoken. His face, the first they had ever looked upon. Wow. Why wow. should they not love Jesus and wow. sound his praise? And then this, as they, as he passed through the towns and cities, he was like a vital current diffusing life and joy wherever he went. When, when Ellen White uses the word current, she very often means stream. Mm-hmm. Like back in the day, they would, they would use the word current for stream. So she could be referencing here like an electrical current, but it seems unlikely. Mm-hmm. She, I think she's referencing a, like a river. So Jesus was like a river. He was like a stream that that flowed through towns, through villages that brought health and healing. And mm. I'm so glad you pointed that out. I literally wrote here in the margin, mm-hmm. beautiful. And she said... I mean, just think about that. Ah. It's amazing. Like, um, there was something in there, I, I don't see it right now, but the idea of using their new powers, testing out oh, their new powers. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right it, here. It's right there. It re- Making trial of their newfound powers. Right. It reminds me of... Um, I have a good friend who's paraplegic. And um, he didn't become paraplegic until his late twenties. Oh. Um, and he told me because he he was a runner. He was a like a mountain guy before. Um, he told me I don't remember what it's like to like balance on my feet or to like he doesn't have the sensory wow. memory anymore. So if he were to all of a sudden you know be miraculously healed, which you know he will be in the resurrection. It's like this, whoa, whoa, this is walking. You gotta try it out. Yeah, and you see this here. It's like, this is what it means to see. This is what it means to hear. Um, that must have just looked amazing. Was it a car accident? Um, polio. Oh, polio. Yeah. Polio. Doesn't your father have polio? Yeah, he wow. does too. Yeah. That's really wild. So he's only 29, you said, and he has polio? No, no when it happened. Oh, when it happened. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, okay, so now here's an interesting thing. In the very next paragraph, she says, this is the paragraph that begins the followers of Christ. The followers of Christ are to labor as he did. We are to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, comfort the suffering, and the afflicted. Now, here's the thing I want to show you. As soon as she said that, I literally wrote Isaiah 58 in my margin. I just wrote that down because she has regular, several times now she has referenced Isaiah 58 directly in reference to the ministry of Jesus. And then look at what she does. Just the very next sentence or two sentences later, she quotes Isaiah 58. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how she closes the chapter. Too. She closes the chapter with yeah. Isaiah 58. So one of the things I want you to feel, and, and you know, when we talk about her use of tone, tact, tenderness, the quoting of Isaiah 58, the way she quotes Paul, which I love because I'm a huge, huge, I would say my biggest passion and theological passion would be the writings of Paul. You're, we're beginning to see themes in her writing, right? We're beginning to see she had a style, like, uh, the Old Test, uh, the, the 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 biblical writers did as well, both Old and New Testaments. If you start reading, I can say, ah, oh, that sounds like Luke. You read something else, that sounds very much like John. You read something, oh, that's Isaiah. Oh, that's Moses. You you can get to the place where you can almost detect. And Ellen White has these little tells. Mm. And the thing I love about her tells is they so often emphasize the the person of Jesus, the the character of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. She was not an ivory tower theologian. She was a mother and she was a grandmother and she was somebody who was really passionate about giving people a picture of who Jesus was and then getting rid of and discarding the pictures of who he isn't and who he wasn't. Mm. I really like that. What do you got? The, I love the statement about comfort. Back to the idea of comfort. It yeah. says... What paragraph are you in? Um, 
Let's see. Just how does it begin? It is... The followers of Christ? Followers of Christ. Yeah, gotcha. Um, The end of that paragraph? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it says, through his human agencies, he desires to be a comforter such as the world knows not. Yes. Well, you know what I wrote here? Look at this. So I'm going to show you, I'll show you this here in a second, but I'm going to show it to Elise. Look at that sentence. Through, there's four parties mentioned in this sentence. So through his human agencies, that's the disciples and the followers of Jesus, he, that's Jesus, desires to be a comforter, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, such as the world knows not. So this is really remarkable. I just wrote here synergy in mm-hmm. the, and one of the big things that emerges here is not only Jesus as educator, not only Jesus as mentor and trainer, but Jesus as delegator, mm-hmm. right? Like like the angels are involved and God gets the church involved and then the Holy Spirit comes and, and God is synergistically connecting all different kinds of people with the goal of, back to our initial opening bit there, the elevation of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I just love the idea of God as synergistic delegator. Mm-hmm. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I think the the message of comfort is especially relevant right now. I was just looking this week at some of the mental health statistics of um, like how has the pandemic amplified already existing mental health problems yeah. around the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the, the suicidal ideation of teens has gone way up. Um, just the, the number of adults reporting symptoms of depression, depression. and anxiety has gone up. And there, there's really never been a more... I mean, we all through human history, people need comfort. But increasingly today, you know, there's this overwhelming sense yes. of hopelessness. Yes. And Preach. and people find different sources of comfort, like you know, without God. And but this says that God wants to use us to comfort, comfort. people in a way they they don't even know is possible at this point. Beautiful. Yeah, and com- the word comfort and tender have a lot in common, mm. don't they? Mm-hmm. Um. In that same chapter, she talks about the love of Christ, the loving missionary, the love of Christ. And here again, it's it's as much how they were behaving as what they were saying, right? The, the, the way that they conducted themselves was to mirror and reflect the way that Jesus conducted himself. And they needed to spend some significant time around him before they could sort of get that, figure that out, and then carry it out. Mm-hmm. They needed to find their feet. They needed to have... You know, they needed to be on the training wheels for a while, but now when they've caught, not only been taught, but they've caught the way that Jesus would handle a situation, they could go into that situation and they could offer the same kind of comfort that Jesus himself would have offered. Mm. And again, this is all in preparation for what Jesus knows is coming, which is his eventual departure. Mm -hmm. It's just great, great teaching. Um, Then next paragraph, the one that begins the disciples on their first missionary journey, she uses the word prejudice again. That word has come up. Hey, Daryl, if you're still listening, it would be incredible. If you could just look up the words bigotry and prejudice in the Desire of Ages, I'll bet both of them are going to be more than 50 times. I mean, again and again and again, she makes these points about prejudice and bigotry. And I really wanted to point this out here. This is that same uh, same paragraph. Even the apostles were slow to understand the gospel was to be carried to all nations until they themselves could grasp this truth, they were not prepared to labor for, labor for the Gentiles. What an insight. Because we read it where Jesus says, okay, don't go to the Gentiles. And we're like, whoa, favoritism. Mm-hmm. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is their hearts were not ready to go to the Gentiles. They were still very much living 
in the bubble of first century Judaism and this hostility toward people that were non-Jewish. And so I love this insight. This is exactly the kind of insight that you get from Ellen White where you're like, of course, I've literally never had that thought. Never have I had that thought. I've always been a little troubled by that. And I just thought, oh, well, it has to do with the 70 week prophecy and you know the 490 years hadn't yet been completed. But it makes so much sense that Remember, they were surprised at the way he affirmed the centurion. They were surprised at the way he spoke to the Samaritan. They were surprised when he called Levi, even though he was a Jew, he was a tax collector. Their hearts were not yet ready to embrace something outside of a very Jewish-oriented mission. And I thought, man, that is so brilliant. And then the next sentence, um, bigotry is 13 times, uh, says Daryl. Well, I was wrong about that. I thought it would be closer to 50. Prejudice will be much higher. If the Jews would receive the gospel, God purposed to make them his messengers to the Gentiles. And that's, that's Abrahamic. The Abrahamic promise was always that God's good plan and God's good promises were for the world and not just for a genetic or a regional group of people. And I just think that's such a cool insight that the reason was their own unpreparedness to minister to the Gentiles in the way that the Gentiles needed to be ministered to. Mm-hmm. Man, that's awesome. That jumped at me. Um, I got, n- I'm on the next page. You got anything there that uh, jumps out at you? Well, yeah, and this kind of piggybacks on what you just said. They didn't realize how expansive their mission was, right? Like, they at that time couldn't really mm-hmm. see beyond their Judaic, mi- their mission to their, you know, fellow Jews. But um, a little bit later, it says, now the Savior's eye penetrates the future. He beholds yes. the broader fields yes. in which, after his death, the disciples are to be witnesses for him. His prophetic glance takes in the experience yes. of his servants through all the ages. And I just thought, what a cool idea. Like, Jesus may have been imagining the very things that he wants us to be involved with right now. So and cool. we can... Um, just like I'm sure it brought a lot of joy and comfort to Jesus's heart to see his his family going out. I think it really does a lot for Jesus when he sees us. You know, even if we're fumbling and making Correct. mistakes, we're helping that dream come true. Yes, yeah, that's a that's beautiful. That we are. You know, one of the words that she uses here is the word assisting. She says the disciples were assisting Jesus you know, organizing the people that wanted to see, bringing those that were unwell. They were assisting. And God, we are assisting, back to delegation, Mm -hmm. God in the realization of his dream. That's an incredible thought. Mm. It's a mind-blowing thought. By the way, they say prejudice occurs 32 times. That's a little less than I would have thought, but still, 32 times. Prejudice and bigotry are major themes that have been one of the things that have jumped out to me here. Mm. Go ahead, what do you got? I love it said... They are con- they are to contend with supernatural forces, yeah. but they are assured of supernatural help. Yeah, and you know there's so many like sci-fi movies today. Like people, human beings love this idea of somehow being empowered by some sort of supernatural help. True, but that's the reality of the gospel. Like we're Ooh. very limited, finite, weak people. But yes. God is wanting to accompany our efforts with supernatural power. Yeah, and not like the ability to shoot lasers out of your eyes. Right. Or travel time, but like to live like Jesus lived and to love like Jesus loved. Yeah. I really love this um, paragraph that begins all over the field of Christ's labor, that paragraph. 
She talks about the tidings of his love, which again, so beautiful. And then I loved this, to all these disciples, to all these, the disciples were to go as his representatives. Mm. So they're really there, not at the behest of Peter or Thaddeus or uh, you know, Levi Matthew. They're there at the behest of Jesus. They're there to represent Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're to do. Mm-hmm. We're to represent Jesus. She did such a great job of explaining the importance of kindness and humility, yes. um, particularly in the face of persecution. Yes. Um, that the way we communicate, you know, is just as important as what we're saying. Yeah. Uh, I'm jumping over now a couple pages. Oh, I think we're on the same page. I'm on page 409 of the Types and Symbols, about 354. This paragraph that begins, the servants of Christ are not to act out the dictates of the natural heart. She describes their conduct, and I'm not going to read that whole paragraph, but it's the very thing that you're describing. And she says they can present the gospel with divine tact and gentleness. That's another key word. Gentleness is a synonym, of course, of tenderness. And she's describing the conduct that they were to exhibit in the face of hostility. And wow, that's not easy to do, especially when you're under personal attack. The natural instinct of the unregenerate human heart, when I'm under personal attack, when my motives are being misrepresented, if represented, is to lash out. Hey, Hannah, I see that and same, 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 same. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. Um, Hannah just said what her word was and that's the same. I had the same word. So I just, I need, that's a supernatural power, Elise. If somebody lashes out at David Asherick, if somebody misrepresents David Asherick, if somebody is unkind to David Asherick, my natural instinct is to come to my own defense and to say, hey, no, um, not cool. So uh, yeah, I just, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think I need a, I need a supernatural power to do that. Mm -hmm. That's not something that I have inside of me. Maybe you do. You're a little more humble than I am. Um, I can definitely lose my temper. I've not seen that. Well, it can happen. Just wait. Just wait. Um, I'm going to jump down to that uh, couple, or actually the very next paragraph. Those who are brought in controversy, a couple sentences down, let them rest in the love of God and the spirit will be kept calm, even Mm. under personal abuse. Mm. Friends, the secret to not lashing out against what she calls personal abuse is what does she say? Resting in the love of God. Mm. That's the secret. Resting in the love of God. Because if God thinks highly of you, if you have an infinite value placed upon you, someone who themselves is acting out of selfishness and unkindness, the things they can say shouldn't really be able to touch you. Mm. Right? It does. It hurts us. But, But if we rest in the love of God, even under personal abuse, we can remain calm Mm -hmm. and not become self-defensive. And the disciples needed that big time because Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus was misrepresented. And so surprise, surprise, they were going to be misunderstood Mm -hmm. and they were going to be misrepresented. This reminds me also, you know, one thing that's helpful to think about if someone is mistreating us because we were trying to share our faith is this promise, you know, like blessed are those that are persecuted. Um, There's a special reward for those that are persecuted. Mm. in heaven. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness sake, where they show, yeah, very good. Yeah. Back to the Sermon Um, on the Mount. And like, we don't, you know, we don't believe in any sort of meritorious aspect of being involved in missions. Yeah. But yet, the Bible has many, many promises of special rewards. Yes. Um, That's not salvation, but 
there's going to be a special honoring and rewarding of people who have suffered for their faith. Yes. Agree. Yeah, no, that's absolutely beautiful. Um, it's important that you make that distinction. The rewards are not tied to salvation. Salvation is a gift, but there are those that were very, I mean, just think of, think of, I mean, here's a really easy example. Think of the new Jerusalem. You have the, the names of the disciples and the names of the patriarchs are there when John saw the new Jerusalem. I mean, they're there, right? The name Elise isn't there. The name David isn't there, but, and that's okay mm -hmm. because there will be some significance to what Elise has done and what David has done. And, and everybody's going to be honored and, and rewarded and understood with their own unique, wonderful contribution. And I think that's cool. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm a couple pages over now. In fact, I'm down to about the last three pages she makes this great point where she has a paragraph, the paragraph, Jesus himself never purchased peace by compromise. And she uses the word compromise or compromising several times in this section. She also uses the word surrender to surrender the truth as a synonym here. And I really like the idea that Jesus was absolutely tender and his tone and his tact and his gentleness, but on principle, on truth, he didn't accommodate himself socially so as to not offend or so as to not upset. He did not compromise on truth. He did not compromise on principle. Mm. I love I love how she said he was too much their friend. Oh, to, I underline that. To remain silent while they were pursuing a course that would ruin their souls. And I think today there's yes. such a prominent, loud message that like, if you really love someone, if you're really their friend, you'll be completely accepting of everything that, that they do. Not just of them. There's this deception that like, you can't disapprove of you know, someone's choices without somehow violating them. But it says he was too much of their friend. And sometimes in order to be a good friend, we have to be willing to have difficult conversations with people. And this goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about the Zacharias thing. Mm -hmm. Like you have to have those people in your lives. Listen, you have to have those people in your lives that are too much of a friend to let you make bad decisions, right? Like, you, you, you want those people in your life and you want to be that person mm -hmm. in other people's life. Who's, that's such great language. He was too much of a friend to remain silent while they were pursuing a course that would ruin their souls. Mm -hmm. One of the really cool things that's happened with my son, Landon, who's still in Australia. And one of the reasons that I actually have peace about Landon remaining in Australia is he has this incredible community of, of young people there, young men and young women, but especially young men that have formed this, this really tight-knit group of more than a dozen of these young guys that are keeping one another accountable spiritually, uh, relationally, financially. Like they're just, they've got this great little thing that's happening there and that friendship is not just, hey, let's hang out and have a good time together. True friendship is, hey, listen, I noticed that you said, I noticed that you, I, I don't think that's the best way. Those are not easy conversations to have. But Jesus was too much of a friend to not have those conversations. And we need to be the same. Mm -hmm. I feel that. I feel that accountability. I love, 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 love where she says, we, we should not be afraid. We should not be afraid. We should not be afraid. And then at the end of that paragraph, she says, our only fear, she says their only fear, but our only fear should be lest we surrender the truth. And I'm actually preaching a sermon a little bit later today. I've got to do it online for my Polish brothers and sisters, and I'm preaching on do not be afraid. And I love the idea that the thing that we are not to be afraid of is what others think of us, what others say about us, what others might do to us. 
The, the only thing we're to be afraid of is not being faithful to the high calling that God has on our life. That's the thing we should be afraid of. And then the, if you don't mind, I'm gonna to jump to the next paragraph and this was so great. This was one of my favorite paragraphs in the whole thing. She says, it is Satan's, this is the paragraph that begins, it is Satan's work to fill men's heart with doubt. He leads them to look upon God as a stern judge. Feel that, feel the contrast between stern and tender and compassionate and gentle. He leads men to look upon God as a stern judge. He tempts them to sin and then regard themselves as too vile to approach their heavenly father or to excite his pity. And then this line, this line popped mm-hmm. to me so big. The Lord understands all this. Mm-hmm. Woo! Elise, God understands this. I loved it because oh. it's like describing oh. this cycle of... I wrote you know, sequence. Yeah. Sequence. There's it's a sequence. Like the sin and shame cycle. Yes. God is bad. You don't want to obey him. You know, the temptation. So then you sin. And then, oh, you're such a loser because you disobeyed You're too God. vile. You can't go to God. And, and just, if you did, he would look down on you because he's a stern judge. It's yeah. just this. And then she says, the Lord understands all this. Mm. Oh, just let that wash over you. Just let that just settle into your heart right now that God understands this shame cycle and he, he says, now, that's not, that's not me. I'm not a stern judge. I'm a tender, sympathetic father. I'm too much a friend. I'm all of those wonderful. It's, it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It just moved my heart. Um, oh, and then, and then, right at the end of that, she has another all-time, there's been several points where I say, this is an all-time number one desire of ages statement. And right here for me, this is an all-time statement. I've quoted it hundreds of times. Not a sigh is breathed, Not a pain felt, not a grief pierces the soul, but the throb vibrates the father's heart. Mm. Feel that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an all-time statement. This is not an impassable God, an unemotional God, an unmoved God. This is a God who feels keenly, like she says a little bit later, in in fact, two paragraphs later, in all of our afflictions, he was afflicted. God feels our pain. He feels our need. He feels deeply and acutely. It throbs the Father's heart. I love it. You got anything to add to that? Oh, you know, it, it makes me think of Matt and Josie um, when Eliza was uh, our, our friends, friends Matt, Matt and Josie. Josie they're Minicus. amazing <laughs> musicians. You should listen to their music. They have a little Beautiful adorable people. little girl named Eliza. And um, when she was first born, she was kind of sick for a while. And then when she was about one, one and a half, she started having like night terrors, which sometimes happens to toddlers for no reason. Landon used to get Where she would wake up screaming and terrified. And like, I remember talking to Matt and Josie about just how they felt. And it was like, they were absolutely torn up. They were like, we would do anything to be able to take that and be experiencing it ourselves instead of her. And that's just a tiny... Um, I can't remember, I think it's in the Desire of Ages, Ellen White says, all the paternal love, all the parental love that's ever existed throughout, you know, human history is a tiny drop compared to the ocean of God's love. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Somebody says they also make really good spices. That's true. If you're you're not aware, Matt and Josie Minicus make the most incredible spices called Matatui. You can go to their website. I think it's just, if you Google Matt and Josie Minicus, they make the most amazing handmade boutique spices. I have like 12 of them in my, in my uh, mm. cupboard. They're so good. Okay, um, I've got 
basically one more thing I want to say, maybe two, and this might be the most important thing that I say all day, but in the paragraph that begins, not even a sparrow, I just wrote down right here, and I want everybody to see this. I just wrote down right here, God is a birder. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like this whole chapter is about how God loves birds. It is only through God's protecting care that the birds are preserved to gladden us with their songs of joy. He does not forget even the sparrows. God is a bird watcher, and that's one of the... I'm following in the footsteps of my good Lord when I am a bird watcher. Are you a bird watcher? You not, need, not you like need you. to repent. You come need to, to the altar. Come to the altar and give your non-birdwatching status over to Jesus. I love this idea, and I've always loved it, that his eye is on the sparrow. If we serve a God that is aware of even the mm-hmm. smallest and most, most seemingly insignificant of his creatures, then how much more mindful is he of those that are made in his image? It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, final thing here, next paragraph says... So I will be your representative in heaven. The Father beholds not your faulty Mm -hmm. character, but he sees you as clothed in my perfection. The Lord understands all this, right? The Lord understands all this. I absolutely loved that. He doesn't see our faulty character. And we began this chapter by talking about you go out, you make mistakes, you do the wrong thing, you have faults. And Jesus sees all of that. And we come back, which is what we're gonna get to here in just a moment, And when we come back and we report to him our failures, our faults, he uses it as teaching opportunities, not condemnation opportunities, right? Win or learn, not win or lose, win or learn. You do the right thing, you learn. You do the wrong thing, you learn. You learn from that. And uh, he sees us as clothed in the perfection of Christ's character. I think that's all I've got. Um, Oh, she does, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all I've got. You got anything more? Mm. Just briefly, I think part of why ministry is such a privilege is because it infuses our life with this super, super rich meaning. Um, I think of Viktor Frankl, who he was an Austrian psychiatrist, and he studied people during the Holocaust. Like, what was different about those that survived? Now, certainly, sometimes it was beyond people's control, but he noticed there were some people that were so tenacious, that were had such a will to live, that they wouldn't die whereas others would die more more readily. And he ended up saying he, he thought it was those who had a strong sense of purpose, a sense of meaning beyond themselves. Yeah. And there's so many ways we, we can get involved in making our world a better place, um, practical ways, and that, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to do that. Right. But ministry, um, I feel like it has such a rich purpose and meaning in that, you know, not only are we trying to make, world a better place here and now but ultimately trying to have an eternal impact and to elevate people for all eternity and that can just give life a rich meaning that we wouldn't have otherwise and I know I found after I started getting involved in ministry the like the way I value my own life changed beautiful yeah, it reflects back on you. He that waters will be watered himself. What's that? Proverbs eleven twenty five or something. Mm. We are benefited in our labors to benefit others. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Okay, we're going to just quickly go down our rubric now for this chapter. Um, this is where we do the point, the person, the prayer, and the practice. And uh, oh, you've r- written them down. Good for you. So for me, why don't we start with you? What okay. was the point of this whole chapter? What was the point? The um, I put we rise by lifting others. 
um, this oh. idea of the elevation. Perfect. That is so well said. Yeah, that we rise by lifting others. That's better than what I wrote. So I'm just going to go with what no. you wrote. <laughs> whatever. Here's what I wrote. I wrote, to tell the story of the sending out of the disciples and to address the lessons and hardships of their first foray into ministry without Jesus' physical presence. Yeah, so that's, mm-hmm. I sort of took the more sort of literary and you took the sort of you know moral of the story, which is that we rise by lifting others, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, how about the, the person? What do we learn about the person of God from this chapter? I put God is collaborative and eager to work with us. Excellent. Very similar to what I wrote. God is a delegator. He values the specific and unique contribution that each of his followers can make to the elevating of humanity and the furtherance of his kingdom of love and grace. So, same, very similar. I say delegator, you say collaborator. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, the prayer. What's, what's your prayer? Oh, I was supposed to come up with a prayer. I thought we were going to pray. No, we will pray. We'll pray at the very end. But, but a way okay, that you yeah. can pray this chapter, I can just tell you what I wrote. I wrote that God used me too. Yeah, show me who you want me to help. Yeah, use me too. Hey, if you can use them and you can use him and you can use her, um, then use David Ashrick. Use Elise Harbel, right? Use Coey. Use the 111. Use 5 Carson's 05. Use Shani May. Like, use us. Mm-hmm. You're God. You're the one that can use, you know, back to the symphony illustration that we've used many times before. You can use the flutes and the timpani and the strings and the clarinet and the oboe. Mm-hmm. Use me too. You've got something for me to do. Okay, and then finally, how can we practice this chapter? You got anything? Well, we, we skipped over the part where she talked about if we have a daily experience with God, yeah. it's going to come out. It'll come out. You, you can't give what you don't. Time with Jesus, God send me someone to help. Um, God's going to honor that, right? Like he's way more eager to plug us into his work than we are to be in it, even if we are. Yeah, no, I love it. I wrote just to get out there and you know what I wrote. Get out there and make some mistakes. That's right. Chase some people down. Just kidding. Just go, go, don't ch- do that. go chase some people down and break out in hives while eating fettuccine Alfredo. No. I wrote get out there and make some mistakes. Bring your failures, your weaknesses, and your questions to Jesus just like the first disciples did. Okay. Did you have a word for this chapter? I did. I picked a word from the chapter. Okay. Good. And what was your word? Elevation. Oh, great word. Great, great word. By the way, if you all could... Uh, hey, Hannah Sakura, great to see you. Um, I'd love to see some other words. What did you guys have? Um, let me know. My word, and Hannah mentioned this earlier, my word was representatives because Ellen White does this really cool thing. At the beginning, she says they were to be his representatives. And then at the very end of the chapter, she says he was their representative in heaven. So I like what she did there, how he rep- they represent him to others and then he represents them to God and they're clothed in the perfect mm. care, perfect righteousness of his character. Okay, so first, trust. Oh, medium. Good mm. word, Savant, mm-hmm. because she uses that. Confess. Okay, Sue had the same word I had, representative. Be interesting to see if anybody else had elevation. Ministry, instruct, illuminate, partnership. Chuck Baby 7 says represent. Okay, very similar to what I had, representative. Tasman Traders says sent. Good word. Work, the nun 11. Interns. Oh, that's a cool mm-hmm. word. I like that. Um, evangelist, great word. Effective. Listen. Mm. Representative, Susie and I had the same word there. Model. Ooh, that's good. Tact. That's a great word. Good for you, Katie, on tact. Oh, Cassandra, you had tenderness. Mm. Oh, beautiful. Great. Great, great, great. Okay. Um, 
So I had representative as my word. Let's see. Okay, I thought somebody else had one there. Okay, now what we're going to do is, and there's a really logical connection here. We're going to have to go through this chapter a little quicker. But there's a really logical connection. The next chapter is titled, Come Rest a While. It's a shorter chapter. So this makes a lot of sense. They were sent out. Now they've come back and they're exhausted. And they're also excited. You know that simultaneous experience of total exhaustion and total excitement? And I'm not going to actually read any of the passages upon which it's based. You can do that. Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 9. But I really, really um, love the idea that they come back and they bring their reports. Mm -hmm. The positive, the negative, the good, the bad, the ugly. And they were exhausted, right? They had seen Jesus pour himself into the lives of people to such a degree that she actually says, and the Bible writers say, they didn't have time to eat. That doesn't happen to me very often, right? We've already seen that with Jesus, with the Samaritan woman. You know, he didn't even think about food because he was so busy about his father's work. So there is this sense now, the throng, the press, the crowds, uh, sense of social space not happening. And so they just need a break. And Jesus says, okay, we're gonna take a little break here. Let's go back, let's debrief. Um, she uses the word retirement a lot in this chapter. Retirement, retirement, retirement. She's not talking about like end of your professional career retirement. She's using the word retirement in a more you know situational context, like they needed a place of retirement. And I was like, what does that word mean? Does it have the root word like tire, like to tire, to fatigue? But I looked it up and it actually comes from the French to draw back. Mm-hmm. So you're in the... You know, you're in the battle, you're in the fray, and you're just going, 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 and you need to just, you just need to draw back, Mm -hmm. retreat a little bit for the purpose of regrouping, reconsolidating, and uh, I I really loved this chapter. Mm -hmm. I thought it was great. Um, So I'll just begin by reading. We're on, we're in chapter 38 now. I'll just begin by reading that second paragraph. In fact, why don't you do that for us, if you would, Elise? The disciples came. The disciples came to Jesus and told him all things. Their intimate relationship with him encouraged them to lay before him their favorable and unfavorable experiences. Exactly. Their joy at seeing results from their labors and their sorrow at their failures, their faults, and their weaknesses. They had committed errors in their first work as evangelists, and as they frankly told Christ of their experiences, he saw that they needed much instruction. He saw too that they had become weary in their labors and that they needed to rest. Exactly what we talked about in the last session. Mm-hmm. These go together really well. They made mistakes. Yeah. I actually just wrote mistakes here in the margin. They made mistakes. They also had done some things right and they needed to debrief. I love how she points out the connection between the intimate relationship and their comfort level in sharing their failures, right? Oh, because if you, that's a great point. Yeah, if you have a critical teacher... Um, you're not going to feel comfortable sharing what you think you did wrong, right? But they were like, oh, I want to tell Jesus what I did wrong. And that really speaks to how he related to to them in their failure. Wow, that is such a great insight. It just further buttresses the idea that we had at the end of our last chapter that he's not a stern judge. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't tell a stern judge the stuff you did wrong, but you could tell a friend. Mm -hmm. You could tell a confidant. You could tell somebody who really had your best interest in mind. Good insight. Um... Then I, I wrote at the top of the next, uh, the paragraph that begins, but when they, but where they then were, that's hard to read, they could not obtain the needed privacy. A little bit later, she talks about how that there were seeds being planted, and she's made this point again and again and again. I'll just read that. 
Many of those who thronged about Christ to receive the precious boon of health accepted him as their savior. Many others, afraid then to confess him because of the Pharisees, were converted at the descent of the Holy Spirit and before the angry priests and rulers acknowledged him as the Son of God. And she's made this point repeatedly about how Jesus not only had the ministry of discipleship and mentorship and education with his disciples, he had the ministry of sowing seeds in the minds of many of those who, after the evidence of his resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit, would the seeds would be watered and they would respond positively, not to the living Christ because mm-hmm. he descended to heaven, or I shouldn't say the present Christ, he certainly was alive, but they responded to the preaching of the disciples about the resurrection, which is cool. Yeah, and I think we need to remember that when we're you know, trying to reach people who don't seem willing and open. It's like, we're in this for the long haul. Thank you. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And we too often take that sort of like very punctiliar view. Like if it didn't happen, right, it's going to happen. It didn't happen. But, but God's like, well, give me a, give me a few years. Mm-hmm. Give me five years. Give me a miracle. Give me a tragedy. Give me a breakthrough. Give me something. And you'll see that seeds were sown that will later be watered mm-hmm. and bear fruit. Very cool. Um, next, a couple paragraphs later, and he said to them, that paragraph's really great because the second sentence it says, Christ is full of tenderness and compassion for all in his service, and he would show his disciples that God does not require sacrifice but mercy. Jesus repeatedly quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, and we've already spent time on that, but I love the fact that she just drops it in here. She doesn't actually even reference the, the, the verse, Hosea 6, 6, but she just quotes it. Mm. And that is such a central idea in understanding both the Old and the New Testaments. And I like how it's just there for her. Like one of the things that I was with Ty just a few days ago doing a DA with DA. And one of the things that Ty said is this woman knew scripture. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ease with which not just knowing scripture in a sort of encyclopedic sense, but she knew where scripture belonged. She was a great theologian, Mm -hmm. not a theologian in the very modern sense of, of the way that we think about theologians, but her theological acumen and her biblical understanding was phenomenal. And Mm -hmm. she just drops that stuff right where it belongs. And I loved that. You got anything there in sort of those first four or five paragraphs? Um, well, <clears throat> it starts to point out that Jesus had received the word of John the Baptist's death. And um, I might be oh, jumping that's, ahead that's the next a tiny paragraph. bit. Yeah, next, but next what really jumped out to me about that was, it says, he longed to be apart for a season from the confusion of the multitude. Um so it wasn't just that Jesus knew that they needed rest, but he needed rest. Yes. And he wanted to spend time with them because he needed comfort. And I think it's Ooh. true for Ooh. us. There's reciprocity in our relationship with God. Like God wow. wants to spend time with us because God still needs comfort, right? Okay. Like God is grieving all the things that are happening. In our afflictions, he is afflicted. Yeah. God's grieving the people in our lives that we feel grief about Incredible. and he wants that time, you know, he wants that time with us and he misses it for his own sake too. Okay. So Elise, you are an extremely faithful friend because I lent you two of my very favorite books about a month and a half ago and you brought them back yesterday. You're that kind of a friend. Um, the two books that you brought back were books by our friend, John Peckham, who actually just sent me a text this morning. But one of the books was called The Theodicy of Love, and the other is The Love of God. Did you read any of The Love of God? I was on The Theodicy of Love. Okay, Theodicy of Love. Sorry. So in the, no, it's okay. In the book, <clears throat> the, the Love of God, one of the things, and I've talked about this already in DA with DA, 
Peckham, at a very high theological, intellectual level, identifies four, I think it's four, it might be five, four or five characteristics of the love of God. And one of them is, <clears throat> he says, the love of God is reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And you just said that. You used a great word, reciprocity. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that Jesus doesn't just say to the disciples, hey, fellas, you need some rest. Come and let's let this instruction, let's let this mentorship continue. What he does is, is he said, we need some rest. Mm-hmm. You need comfort. I need comfort. And we're going to see this in, in full bloom, mm. right, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's longing and hoping and praying. What are you going to say? Yeah. Oh, in that chapter, she says, um, when, you know, you were just about to say Jesus is longing that his disciples, the three that came with him, will be with him, praying with him. Praying right? with Because him, he has this way of sin coming down right? on him. She says, the human heart longs for sympathy in sorrow. This Jesus felt to the depth of his being. Can you just quote that one more time? That's too good. Listen to this very carefully as she says this again. The human heart longs for sympathy and sorrow. This Jesus felt to the depth of his being. That's incredible. That's the God we serve. Mm. I want you to just feel how beautiful that is. Sometimes we get this picture in our mind that God is like this like really bright fluorescent light in the sky, right? Mm. Like he's, and he is of course totally other. He's totally different. What God is in his essential nature and ontology, we don't understand that. We can't access that because we're creaturely. But what God is in his character in his person, words like tenderness and compassion and kindness and comfort and reciprocity and reciprocal. And that phrase that you just gave there, the, the, when we're sorrowing, mm-hmm. we want someone that we can share our sorrows with. So those sorrows, my, my granddad, I had the coolest grandfather ever. And uh, his name was Charles Oakley Atkins. And my middle name is Charles and my brother's middle name is Oakley. So we're named after our granddad, but nobody called our granddad Charles Oakley. They all called him Oak. Isn't that just the coolest name for him? And he was a big, strong farmer of a man with giant sausages for fingers. I mean, he was the best man I ever knew. And his name was Oak. And uh, anyway, Oak used to have a a little poster hanging up in his house. And I I just loved this because he was a farmer, longtime farmer, longtime railroad man. And uh, it was the picture of these, of these two boys that were like young boys, like, like two years old. And they were like naked, but they like not naked. That's the wrong word. They had shirts off, but they had overalls on. So it was cute. They were like little baby farmers and they had their arms around one another. And it said, when you have a friend or a close friend, your joys are doubled and your mm. sorrows are cut in half. Mm. And I don't, even as a young boy, it's funny the things that stick with you. I thought, oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what friends do. They double your joys and they have your sorrows. Mm. That's what you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. When, when we're sorrowing, we need a friend that we can call up. We, I, can tell, I, I hope I'm not breaking any rules here, um, but... My good friend Elise and I and another close friend of ours, Jennifer, we have a little community that we will often get together and talk and our joys will be doubled and our sorrows will be cut in two. And we actually, can I tell them the name of it? Mm-hmm. We call it the Pancake Club. I don't know why we call it the Pancake Club. Why did, did you name it? Um, it just happened. But who named it though? Uh, it might have been my idea. <laughs> So, Maybe we need a new name, but it works. No, right? it's a great name. We just call it the Pancake Club. We've never eaten pancakes together that I can remember. But the point is, is that you, we all need to have our tribe, our people. And 
you know, fortunately, Elise is blessed with a lot of close friends. So am I. Friends in ministry, friends in following Jesus. We need that because when our joys come into our lives, it feels they're almost better if you can share them with somebody. Mm-hmm. And when sorrows come into our lives in desperation, we think, I've got to tell, I've got to, I've got to tell somebody. And that's Jesus here. Mm-hmm. The disciples come back, they frankly, she uses the word frankly, they frankly lay out not only their great joys and successes, but also their mistakes and failures. And in Jesus, there would have been the, the doubling of their joys and the having of their sorrows. Mm-hmm. And your point is that Jesus also wanted that. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. What an idea. Feel that. Um, this was a great chapter. I'm actually going to skip over a couple pages now. Unless I miss anything. Um, Can we talk briefly about... Yeah. Which chapter? Um, let's see. I'm on 361. What, how does the chapter begin? Uh, the paragraph near... Near Bethsaida. Yep, Bethsaida. go. I just... Um, it, it was talking about the location. And yes. she called it a welcome retreat. And she just made this oh, point like that. that like they needed the right spot. They needed the right environment in order to have this experience. Um, and so the word that kind of popped out at me there was environment, like, and what is the practical lesson for us today of like, what, what do we need to do environmentally? You were talking about this yesterday with, you know, the idea of there are certain parts of our environment we don't have control over, right. but if we're wanting to rest, if we're wanting to connect with Jesus, how can we have the best shot at getting into the best environment to do that? Hannah Sakura, who I love, I love the whole Sakura family, but she says, Elisa's female thinking, two hearts and hand clap. Exactly. Exactly. She's not just a female, you're certainly that, but she's an amazing thinker. And I have long been a believer that there is a certain, there's a certain perspective and an insight that is unique and wonderful and idiosyncratically feminine. And then there's one that's masculine and very often in Christian circles. I love that idea about a welcome retreat. Mm -hmm. A little bit later in that same paragraph, I underlined this line. The scenes of nature were in themselves a rest. Mm. And I can relate to this. Actually, years ago, I preached a sermon on how to keep the Sabbath. And I coined a term, restoration. Because we have the term recreation. But I love the idea of restoration. The kind of recreation that we're doing is something that intrinsically brings rest. And my experience has been I get far more rest in nature, in a valley, at a stream, by a pond, on a mountain, because the scene – in fact, they've actually done studies on this. You're probably familiar with it. You do a lot of reading about these sorts of researchy things. And and they actually took a bunch of people. They had them walk around a track, and then they monitored a bunch of like sort of blood markers and anxiety level markers. They did Mm -hmm. all this. And then they had people take a walk, the same length walk, but in a park out in nature, and all of the markers showed greater relaxation, greater peace, lower nerves, less anxiety. Nature is calming. Mm -hmm. And my heart really goes out to people who live in extremely urban environments, who have such busy lives that they only occasionally or episodically get out into nature. My heart breaks for those people, and I would just strongly encourage you, make it a priority insofar as it's possible for you in your situation. Get in nature, even if it's just a local park 
where you can listen to the singing of a lark or a robin or a bird or watch a squirrel or, or just look at the grass or the flowers, there is healing in nature. Mm-hmm. And that's not like some woo-woo, new agey thing. It's true. Nature's God brings us healing through nature itself. Mm-hmm. And I'm all about that. In fact, I'll tell you a cute little story. Yesterday, I was singing the praises of my amazing wife because she is so amazing. And she made us a great dinner last night, eh? It was so good. So good. Brussels sprouts. I ate the leftovers for breakfast. Sorry. Oh, you did? Yeah, oh, there's okay. no more. I heard you in there. I wondered what you were eating. But yesterday, I had had a very busy weekend, and then I had a busy morning, and then I've got a, a hugely busy day. In fact, while I'm doing this, I literally got a text reminding me that I missed um, an 11 a.m. meeting. So sorry about that. Sorry about that, Doreen. I'll reach out to you as soon as I'm off this. But anyway, chaos. So yesterday I said to Violetta, hey, could we just sneak over? We've got this beautiful little canyon that's like literally five minutes from our front door. There's great rock climbing in there. And I, I haven't been climbing for almost three weeks, which for me is like I'm going through withdrawals. So I said, Violetta, is there any way you could take me over there and we could do some climbing? And so we went yesterday and spent, it was just the two of us. There was almost nobody in the canyon yesterday. And uh, we were just climbing. She wasn't doing climbing yesterday. She didn't feel well. But we just laid in the sun and we talked and the, the, the ice and the snow was melting and I was climbing and the birds were, we got to see a lot of really great birds, heard canyon wrens. I mean, it was just like, yesterday was so good for me. It wasn't long. It was like, Three hours, but it was perfect. Just what I needed. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that that the scenes of nature are in themselves a rest. Mm. Mm. Anything else you got there on that, uh, in that? Yeah, well, I think too, nature is a huge one, but also like environmentally in our homes, yeah. you know, with our phones. There's so much chaos coming, Thank coming you. our way. Thank you. And it's important if we want to have those those times of connection to create white space, like white space is a design term, you know, on any given page, you want to have enough white space. You don't want the, the page to be crowded with all text or all images. And we need that in our lives. They do a great job of that here. They do. And the conflict beautiful. Like, look at yours. There's not, there's yeah, almost but no this white is, this I know, like I have one, looks. I have one, I have one. But there's not enough white space. It, you're right. But you're right, like... Like a great photo is made even greater or a great painting is made even greater greater by the framing. Mm -hmm. And the framing, what the framing does is it creates space. Mm -hmm. It creates a space in which the thing sits. And we need to do that in our own lives. Mm -hmm. We need to create frames that we can set our family in, our work in, our recreation in, our money in. But too often these things just run together, especially in the modern world with information coming at us continually, Mm -hmm. marketing coming at us continually. We've got no space yeah. To just take a breath and say, why am I doing this and why am I going a million miles an hour? Right. And Jesus understands that. He's like, hey, fellas, we don't even have time to eat. We're being continually pressed and thronged. You've just gotten back from your missionary journeys. Let's go to a welcome retreat and let's debrief. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, um, it reminds me of Marie Kondo, who uh, she's the <laughs> Japanese professional organizer girl. Yeah, right? she's she cool. comes into people's like hoarders, houses that are full of clutter and she has a philosophy about getting rid it. of stuff. She asks, she tells people, you know, think, hold in your hand whatever it is that you're wondering about this cup. And the question is, does this bring you joy? Does this bring me joy? If the answer is yes, what do I do with you it? You can keep it. If it brings me joy, I keep it. What if the answer is no? You have to get rid of it. Yeah, I thank it for its service. 
Yeah, that part's a little I weird. like that part. Okay. I actually No, did but that. it's because she actually thinks that it's Yeah, I know, but I don't get right. into that part of it. But <laughs> I actually had a bunch of shirts that I really liked and some shoes that I really liked. And I was like, it's been great. It's been real. <laughs> but it's time for you to go now. I need did to Did that help work. you have yeah, closure? It actually did help me yeah. to have closure. And then the other thing I did is I took photos of them. Nice. Because then I, it doesn't take up much space. I just have this little digital space of these shoes and these. <laughs> so the point is, I actually uh, preached a sermon called Detox. And this whole idea of because God is our friend, he wants us to get rid of all the things in our life that aren't bringing us joy. Whether Ooh, that's the clutter in our homes or Marie the bad Kondo. habits that we have or whatever. And a lot of times clutter. we hold on to clutter environmentally or we allow our minds and our schedules to be cluttered with stuff that doesn't really matter that much um, because we think it's bringing us joy. But I think one of the lessons that popped out at me in this chapter was just like, you you have to let go of something in order to enter the the experience of rest. Like you have to let oh, go of the distraction. I like that. You have to let go of something in order to enter into the experience of yeah. rest. Is that what you said? Like they had to intentionally get in the boat and try to go to this place where there would be more rest. So what does that look like for us? Is that turning off the phone? Is it blocking up, you know, off adequate time? Um, because it's not something like in our culture today, we don't automatically find seasons of uninterrupted, uninter- can't say it, uninterrupted rest. Which is what part of the reason that the Sabbath is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's a great point. I thought it was interesting. It was talking about. I like that. You got to let go of something in order to this, rest. Um, the, the rabbis, it, with them, it was the sum of religion huh. to be in a bustle, bustle of, of activity. activity. Yeah. It reminded me of the VeggieTales song, the, the, the asparagus guy singing about how busy he is. I'm, I don't remember. Oh, can can you sing us the song? Oh, goodness. Okay. I've never heard it. Yeah. He's like, I am busy, busy, dreadfully busy. There are so many things I have to do. Busy, busy, shockingly busy. Much, much too busy for you. Um, <laughs> but it's like a whole song about how we're like so busy. And it I'm re- way too busy. Dreadfully busy. <laughs> and it reminded me, of, I read this thing about like, um, I think it was prior to the industrial revolution. It was more of a status symbol to to rest. To right? rest, and it's totally reversed yeah, now. Yeah, because like you're affluent, you can go on lots of vacations. You can, but after the industrial revolution, it became like busy as the new cool. Yeah, and we kind of find this weird sense of identity and like talking about how busy we are. Oh, I'm so busy. Yeah, I'm so busy. That's oh, true. I just hardly got any sleep last night because I was being busy. Yeah, and that becomes almost a status symbol. Yeah. And she says that that hustle and bustle of activity was a status symbol with regards to the Judaism of Jesus' day. And then she says, what a great line this is, that uh, like the disciples, we are in danger of losing sight of our dependence on God and seeking of making a savior... Of our activity. Making a savior of our activity. That's incredible. Yeah. What an idea. Sometimes you've heard the saying, less is more and more is less. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes, I have a very good friend. His name is Greg. I actually talked about him yesterday. Talked to him on the phone last night. And one of the things that Greg has said to me over the years, he's an, a very successful businessman. He's a, I'd call him a mentor. And one of the things that Greg has said to me is, you need to just take time every day to think, mm. to, to just carve out time on your schedule. And it says, 
think. Just empty space where your job in that moment is not to be reading, not to be liking, not to be scrolling, not to be watching, not to be talking, not to be texting, to be thinking. Mm. And we live in a world right now that's so technologically and electronically crowded, if we don't make time to think, it won't happen. Yeah. Great point. There's those frames we talked about. Um, I love this line here. This is getting toward, in fact, this is like the second to the last paragraph. We can circle back to anything that you wanted to get. But I just love this. If today, this is the uh, chapter, the, uh, the paragraph that begins, come aside by yourselves, he bids us. A little bit later, she says in that same paragraph, if today we would take the time to go to Jesus and tell him our needs, we should not be disappointed. He would be at our right hand to help us. We need more simplicity, more trust mm-hmm. and confidence in our Savior. And I thought, yeah, more simplicity. Mm-hmm. Let's just, like the disciples of old, after their evangelistic mission, let's come back and share our triumphs and our failures mm-hmm. with Jesus and then think reflectively about them and strive for simplicity. I mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. It, it reminds me of um, the whole Mary-Martha story where Mary thinks, yes. Mary thinks she's being the most useful because she's so busy. She's working. Um, she's singing the VeggieTales song probably. Right. And yet Jesus says Mary's the one that chose the good part, which won't be taken away from her. And I thought it was interesting. It says, if we would give heed to his word, come eat yourselves apart, we should be stronger and more useful. Stronger and more useful. This, this isn't just a matter of, oh, take a break. You know, it's you're actually going to be more productive, more strategic, more useful. Because if we think that, I think like there's this element of pride that comes in when we think that we'll accomplish more if we just overwork than if we'll think we, than if we follow God's method, right? Yeah. Like God is the one, this is his work. This isn't our work. Correct. And, and he's the one that established like the Sabbath, for example. Yeah. I mean, that looks highly inefficient, right? Like just from an external perspective, you're like, what? You're going to take one day off in seven? That's like, what, 15% of your time off? Like, mm-hmm. no way. Ty, the other day when he was on, when we had a chapter, because this is now our second chapter in a three or four about, in the last three or four about rest, because we had the section, um, Peace Be Still, where Jesus had gone apart to the eastern seaboard of the Sea of Galilee to get some rest. He was confronted by the demoniacs, but he'd gone there specifically for rest. And Ty made this really great point that, there are studies that show that productivity and creativity actually decrease with ceaseless activity. Mm. And you have to take those spaces to then get back in and be, what does she say? Stronger and more mm-hmm. useful. More productive. Less is more. Less is more sometimes. And uh, there can be seasons of intense busyness. I've had these in my own life. But then you also have to have seasons of what she calls retirement, mm-hmm. right? Or withdrawal. To, to step back from the fray. So, and she says this about John the Baptist. It's just dawning on me now. She would talk about how John the Baptist would spend all that time in the wilderness, but then he would go among the people. He had these seasons of mm-hmm. activity and then seasons of rest. Activity and rest, activity and rest. Mm-hmm. Um, I like too that, I remember, I can't remember which verse it is, but it's talking about um, when the disciples had come back and they're talking to Jesus about one of the encounters that they have. And he says, um, don't rejoice. What is it? Don't rejoice that you can cast out oh, yeah, yeah, demons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is right in that same chapter. Rejoice that your name is written, written in, in the heaven. book of life. Yeah. And I think um, 
because as human beings, we're so wired to find a valid identity. Sometimes ministry itself can become an addiction or like, this is where we're getting our sense of value from the part of the reason why we need these rest periods, these regrouping periods with Jesus is because we should never feel that we're valuable to Jesus because Because I knew you were going to say that. Right. Good for you. Like we're primarily his children. Um, we're not just not his employees. Right. Wow. And that's very prodigal son esque, isn't it? Like he comes mm-hmm. back, like make me a laborer, make me like one of the hired servants, and the father's like, "You're not a servant, you're a son." Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I'm, I got, I've got nothing more there. I feel like we covered all the things that I wanted to say. If you've got any more little gems you want to bring out, please do, I and just, then we'll do the rubric. Yeah, I just want to read. I just thought it was beautiful. Some of the final statements um, towards the end of three sixty four. It says, when every other voice is hushed yes. and in quietness we wait before him, the silence of the soul makes more distinct the, the voice, voice of, of God. God. Yeah, beautiful. And and then kind of what's the result of that time? Um, it said that... Here alone? Um, like in the last sentence, yeah. it said, amid, amid the hurrying throng and strain of life's intense activities, the soul that is thus refreshed will be surrounded with an atmosphere of light and peace. What a picture. And um, I just think we were just talking so much about how our moods influence others, our trust influences others, who we become in these times of rest influences influences others. Yeah. So it's definitely a productive thing to do. And I love the idea that she says there, here alone, true rest can be found in those silent moments where we're listening to the distinct voice of God. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, that was a great chapter. And they, they really segue, to, they connect incredibly well. Mm-hmm. So you have the first chapter is really about activity. And then the next chapter is really about regrouping and reflecting on that activity. And how can we do it even more effectively? And what, did you have a word for this chapter? Simplicity. Oh, good word, simplicity. Um, my word, and she uses it over and over again... I've got all the little orange circles here. Maybe you can see those. Is the word commune or communion? She uses it again and again. Commune with Christ. With mm. me. Oh, it was this line was the to me captured everything. This is back very early in the chapter. She says, "Like Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, like David among the hills of Judea, or Elijah by the brook Cherith, the disciples needed to come apart from the scenes of their busy activity to commune with Christ." Mm-hmm. And with nature and with their own hearts. Think about that. Commune with Christ commune with nature and commune with their own hearts. And then she goes on one, let me just count them here, two, three, four, five more times to use the word communion. Communion, 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 communion. So that was my word, mm-hmm. communion. Um, anybody else here? Uh, communion, somebody says. You had communion, okay. I had commune slash communion. Somebody says rest, very good, refresh. I'm, I like the word rest. I'm trying not to use the same word twice if possible. Still, I like that. Still, great Still. word. Commune and simplicity. Oh, simplicity. Same as you. Mm-hmm. Um, re- retire. Commune is a great concept, says Tasman Trader. Leisure. Oh, I like that. Peace, serenity, mm-hmm. needs, strain. Interesting. Simplicity. Depressurization. Whoa, Terrace. Nice. Going multisyllabic. Um, restoration. David, talk to the young generation. Mine and our parents' generations know that, but young people think they have to be busy 24-7. You're exactly right, Hannah. Retreat, apart, refuel. Oh, great Mm -hmm. word. Refuel, vitalized, apart, retreat. A lot of great words there. 
Yeah, I really like the word communion. And um, what I've been doing here, Elise, I'll show you. I'll show everybody else here. Oh, nice. I've been writing down my word for every chapter. So every chapter I've got my little word, and I'm trying not to use the same word twice so Mm -hmm. far. Because you could have easily used the word rest for this chapter, but I just used it a few chapters before. Okay, let's do our rubric. Okay. And uh, what was the point of this chapter, Elise? I put, we were designed for white space. Oh, I like that. Space, a frame Mm -hmm. to sort of, oh, that's really good. Um, I wrote here the point of this one. I almost read uh, the other one. The point is to describe the importance of rest, withdrawal, and especially communion for Christ's co-workers and representatives. I feel like your descriptions do a much better job of... No, yours are good. Explaining Your last one was incredible. Well, yeah, I just that's just sort of the way my brain works. But yeah. yours about in lifting others, we are elevated. Was that it? That's we it? rise by lifting we others. We rise by lifting I, others. I, I don't think that's an original quote. Yeah, but still, it's great. Okay. It's great. We'll, get, we'll give you credit for it until somebody sues us. Um, how about the person? What do we learn about the person of God here? Oh, somebody says quietness. Oh, quietness was Hannah's. Mm-hmm. Intimacy... Reset, mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, those are all great words. Um, oh, cool. I don't think they were saying, I don't think cool was their word. I think they were just saying that was cool. <laughs> cool. I was like, cool, hmm, cool. Uh, what do you got about the person here? God is compassionate toward our limitations. Ooh, yes. God is compassionate toward our, our limitations. Beautiful. I wrote that God understands human nature and human needs. And also he loves birds. <laughs> I'm committed to God as a birder. It just makes me love him all that much more. Um, the prayer, uh, you just thought, so you didn't have a prayer. So here's what I wrote. Um, Father, teach me to prioritize the incredible incalcul- incalculable value of regular and deep communion with you. Mm. I just came up with one. Let me hear it. But I like yours. Um, God... Help show me how to get rid of the things that aren't bringing me joy. Very Marie Kondo. Yes. I like it. And then finally, how do we practice this chapter? I think Sabbath is a big part of how ah, we practice Ah, that's exactly what I said a couple chapters ago when my mm-hmm. word was rest. Keep Sabbath. What but, else do you got? But also, I think we need rest every day. I mean, yeah. we need some sort of rest experience yeah, agree. throughout the week. I put, um, how do we practice this chapter? Make time for restoration and to lead a balanced life, a life of communion and connection with our creator and savior. So I think it's about leading that balanced life where you've got the right amount of physical and intellectual and thinking time and social time. And we need that. And it's really easy to get bent out of shape and spend too much time doing one thing and not enough time or no time doing another really important thing. And the claims of modernity and of technology on our lives are just so strong. If we don't actively resist them, they will pull us in their gravitational pull and we'll end up not being the people that we, and and we now know, we talked about this with Ty a couple days ago, if we don't get that balance right, there are actual physical health consequences mm-hmm. for live, living lives of high stress, high anxiety, low rest. And so Jesus doesn't want that for us. He wants a, a, an abundant life for us. And a part of that abundance is resting in mm-hmm. him. Come apart and rest a while. Elise, I'll give you the final word and then we'll have prayer together. 
Oh, man. I you got anything for us? It can be anything about what? either chapter. This has been your first DA with DA experience. It's been a long one, but it's been, it's, time has flown by for me. Yeah. Um, the only thing that's coming to mind is I want to know what your favorite bird is. My favorite bird? Yeah. My very favorite bird is the largest falcon in the world. It's called a jeer falcon. Okay. Yep. Okay, something more um, relevant came to mind. Not that okay. that isn't relevant. No, super, super it relevant. Is, right? Um, what would you say to someone who is interested in sharing their faith but isn't sure how to get started? My Okay, so my advice would be the next person that you see walking down the street, walk past them about a minute and a half, turn around, chase them down, and then make a really sincere plea with them to study the Bible with you. That's my advice. Do you have any advice? <laughs> Okay, listen, let's close with prayer. It's been so great to be with you on day 40 of DA with DA. We'll be back tomorrow morning. Do you have class tomorrow morning? No. So we'll be earlier tomorrow, Mm -hmm. probably eight or nine Mountain Standard Time. I'll let you know on Instagram. And what is our chapter tomorrow? Um, Oh, oh, is it give give them them to eat? Yeah. Oh, that's going to be fun. Mm -hmm. Which is really picking up from what we talked about already. The disciples as delegators and Mm -hmm. co-laborers and collaborators. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay, so we'll see you tomorrow morning. We're going to close with prayer. Father in heaven, this has been a great season of reflection and um, thinking about the balance in life between the call to busyness and activity and ministry and to being sold out for others, just as Jesus was sold out for others. But then, Father, having those periods of rest, those seasons of backing away and saying, okay, reflecting, what can I learn? What are the lessons that I could have learned from that situation, that circumstance? And Father, especially in the context of nature, um, Father, you are the creator of nature and there's so much healing and rest to be found therein. And so I wanna pray a special prayer for everyone that's listening in here. Father, each one unique, each person a little different. Um, Father, some that are listening in need to be more disciplined and more active. And others that are listening in need to be more restful and more intentional about creating space for rest. Um, Father, whatever our specific needs are, we are so happy that when we come to you and we present to you our faults and our failures and our mistakes, frankly, you do not hold us in contempt. You receive us with tenderness. And Father, help us to be very open and honest with you, knowing that you're not a stern judge, but you see us clothed in the perfect righteousness of the character of Jesus and that you can be trusted and loved that there's a tenderness in your character and in your demeanor toward us. Father, thank you for this great session of DA with DA. Thank you that Elise is here and uh, we look forward to being back together tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.